0: Well, miracles are great, okay? Miracles are amazing. I mean, miracles are basically miraculous. That's what miracles are. But nine times out of 10, when you're talking about a miracle, it means someone had their back up against the wall. It means that someone was in pretty dire circumstances. I mean, all of us want a miracle, right? We just don't want to be in the situations that necessitate a miracle, We want to see the miraculous happen, but we don't necessarily want to have to go through those things that you have to go through to need a miracle in your life. And this week, we're going to take a look at a woman who is having a very, very difficult time in her life and in her circumstances. In fact, I'm not sure that things could get worse for her. And if you have a Bible, you can turn to the passage in 2 Kings 4 while I give you some background for what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, It's the time period about 850 BC when Israel had been split into two kingdoms, the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. And we find this story taking place in the northern kingdom, which is run by a king who has ignored God. He's turned his back on God and has led the people away from God. And the nation is in turmoil. The enemies are getting stronger. The economy is getting weaker. The leadership of the country is trusting more in their own wisdom that, rather than God's. And in the middle of this, as a result of a national crisis that's going on, family after family is facing personal crises of their own. And people say the Bible isn't relatable. You think we can relate to the situation and the circumstances that I just described? There are countless people uh, in, in our country today, in our world today, even in our church that are dealing with difficult times because of what we're facing as a culture right now, because of what we're facing economically, because of what we're facing socially, because of the things that are happening in the world around us. And we can relate to circumstances like this. Even though this happened 3,000 years ago, we still can relate because some of those truths and emotional attachments are timeless. And so as we dive into this passage today, we can relate to what this woman is going through. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. One day, the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, my husband who served you is dead. And you know how he feared the Lord, but now a creditor has come threatening to take my two sons as slaves. Okay. So here's this woman's story. The woman married a man who served God as a prophet. So this, this man was in full-time ministry, uh, serving God as a prophet. And he was a godly man in a very ungodly society. So he was being a voice, a spokesperson for God in the middle of a A culture that was headed away from God and in the middle of all of Israel's trouble this man of God suddenly dies we don't know how it doesn't tell us how he died we just know that he did and he hasn't done a very good job with the family debt he didn't get the right amount of life insurance or what have you and has now left the family in a bind Uh, to make things worse now the creditors are banging on the door and and they're demanding payment for these debts and the creditors kind of size up the situation here And the woman is older, she doesn't have the ability to work and to repay the debt. So the creditors decide that the only way to settle her account is to take this woman's sons and enslave them, kind of this indentured servitude, until that debt has been repaid. And so that's the circumstance that this woman finds herself in. And you can imagine if her sons are taken away, her ability now to provide for herself and to sustain herself has been ripped away as well. Now, obviously this is a troubling story. We hear this and we we grieve along with her and there's a part of us, hopefully, we connect beyond just the words of the story and we understand that there is a level of Of uh, incredible grief. There's a level of anxiety. There's a level of inner turmoil that this woman is wrestling with. That many of us, obviously, we haven't been through the exact same circumstance, but many of us have been through circumstances that elicit those same kind of responses in us and from us. And uh, obviously, the enslaving of children is incredibly troubling, but also the thought that this man of God would die. And his family wouldn't be taken care of, wouldn't be provided for. Uh, Let's let's pull back and be more general than just this story. Anyone ever get frustrated with the situation where bad things happen to, to good people? Or even worse, do you get frustrated when good things happen to bad people? You know, it's the other side. I mean, what's that all about? Uh, but I want to take a few minutes to just talk about that dynamic because I think that's important. It's not necessarily tied into the, the greater narrative, but I think that's an important element to pursue for just a moment because I feel like it's a real issue for people today. Uh, and I hear people say, I don't get it. Why would God do that? That kind of talk, even in life today, a lot of people feel like their personal situations, what they're going through are unfair. Uh, you know, we haven't done as much bad. We haven't been as irresponsible as other people, yet it feels like we're experiencing maybe the brunt of the consequences of the economy. We're struggling financially, losing jobs, homes that don't have that sense of peace, and we don't get it. And we're thinking, okay, I've started going to church. I'm focusing on my family. I'm doing the right things. Come on, God, what are you doing? That's not fair. And I've heard that phrase used before. That's not fair. And a few thoughts on that. First is this, neither you nor I want fair. Please understand me, you do not want fair. Fair would mean that everyone in the world got equal treatment, okay? Which would mean that to be average, you and I would be living without electricity making less than $1,000 a year. That would be equitable, that would be fair economically. Second thought, when we say we want fair, what we really mean is we want favor. You know, our perspective on fairness is imbalanced at best. It's tainted. It's personal. It's very subjective. Think about it. When bad things happen to good people, we get all bent out of shape because they didn't deserve it. And yet when the same thing happens to bad people, now we think, well, they had that coming. And maybe you don't use those exact words, but we have those tilted feelings uh that go on inside of us and so what we really believe is that good people deserve to be treated better by god not equally that they should have much less trouble in this world because they're good people and we'll talk about that in just a minute third thought is this we don't like it when bad things happen to good people but it's even worse when good things happen to bad people how do they get away with it that's not fair And you're right. It's not fair. Here's news if you haven't figured it out. Okay. God is not into fair. God does not treat us fairly. And I am overwhelmingly grateful that God does not treat us fairly. Now I did not say that God was not consistent and God was not just because he is both of those things, but he's definitely not into fair the way we think of fair. Here's what I'm saying, the fact that good things happen to bad people is not fair, it's gracious. It's a sign of God's character. God is gracious. We serve a grace-giving God, a God of second chances, a God who is slow to anger and shows compassion on those who don't deserve it, including me and including you. And that is a good thing. The Bible mentions that in Romans 5:8. But God shows his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. I mean, aren't you glad hearing that, that God is not fair? Fair would mean every one of us would spend eternity separated from God for all time in hell. That would be fair. Fair would mean Jesus never came and gave his life for us. And I don't know about you, but I don't want anything to do with fair. I'm very glad that God does not treat me fairly. God does not treat me as I deserve, but he gives me grace. And as far as why bad things happen to good people, here's what the Bible teaches. There are no good people. Romans 3.10 says, no one is righteous, not even one. And we look at one another and we kind of, we set the bar of goodness according to how the people around us are acting. We find this kind of common denominator of the behaviors of our fellow man, and we average it out to determine this kind of baseline for good. But the reality is this, God is good and we are not. Romans 3.23 says, for everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Uh, some, some translations add standard of perfection. That's goodness. It's God's standard of perfection and we don't measure up to that. So here's another thought as to why we endure tough times. God uses difficulty to make us more like Jesus. God uses difficulty to make us more like Jesus. When Jesus came into the world, was Jesus' life perfect? Not even close. Jesus was perfect, but not what he went through. What Jesus faced, what Jesus endured, the people who were around him, he faced a ton of adversity. So why is it that we We don't think that we will face the same thing. God allows difficulty to break us out of our self-reliance and to show his power. He uses it to teach us to trust him. He uses difficulty to help us know him personally, to see his character. He uses difficulty to give us a story that we can tell. And it is our story that is irrefutable evidence of the power and the grace of our God. People can refute all sorts of things. They can argue with you about the validity of the Bible and the truth of Scripture. They can argue with you about the historicity of the resurrection. They can argue with you about creation versus evolution. All those things they can argue with you about. But the one thing they can't argue with you about is your personal experience, your story, your testimony. Because that happened to you. And when you're sharing what has happened to you, That is what it is. And so your story is a very powerful, powerful tool, a weapon that we can wield against the enemy and a blessing that we can give to people around us to let them know about the goodness of God and how he has demonstrated his grace to us. Trouble is not an issue of God's character. It's an issue of ours and the broken world that we all live in. And this whole book, the Bible, was written about imperfect people in a fallen world looking to a gracious God for guidance. And the story of the widow that we're looking at today is no exception to this. Stories like this one are here for us to learn this. You will be tested, but God can be trusted. You will be tested, but God can be trusted. And I think what I'm saying here is that Here is a woman who is in a situation she does not want to be in, but sometimes it's in those very situations where God works something miraculous in our lives. And today we're going to look at this woman's life for just a few minutes to see how to turn around a bad situation. Let's see the steps this woman took, what did she go through, what did she experience, and how did God turn this situation around. So we'll continue now in the second verse, 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse 2. What can I do to help you, Elisha asked. Tell me, what do you have in the house? Nothing at all, except a flask of olive oil, she replied. A flask would be about this big, okay? Uh, That's the olive oil that she had available in the house. So here is step one. This is the first thing this widow does right. We need to realize that often the miracle begins with what you do have, not what you don't have. Our nature is to focus on our lack. It's to focus on what we don't have, to focus on the things that we're not good at, to focus on the things that we don't have an abundance of. That's kind of where our attention goes because we want to fix problems. We want to shore up our defenses. And so this woman begins with that in mind. I don't have anything. I have nothing that you can use to fix this problem. And she looks at her situation and it's so frustrated. She doesn't even know where to begin. And Elisha looks at her and says, tell me what you have. And a response is probably what our response is a lot of the times. I have nothing. I have nothing God can use. I have nothing that's worth anything. I don't amount to anything. That's kind of where our, our baseline level of understanding goes a lot of the times. I've got nothing, but it wasn't true. And oftentimes in difficult situations, when we get into adversity, the strength of our emotion blinds us to the resources that we have available to us. And so the man of God here, Elisha, helps her think, come on, what do you have? What do you have available to you? And she says, well, all I have is a little oil. I have this one flask of oil. She had no idea what was going to come of that, but it's the one resource she had available. And here's what we need to remember. When a problem arises, God wants us first to look for the solution in what we have, not what we don't have. How many of you know that sometimes we get a little too focused on what we can't do or what we don't have? We've all been there. We've all fallen into that trap. And so she starts out saying she doesn't have anything, but the old man jogs her memory. She remembers this one pot, this one flask of oil. She has this one resource, this one asset. At her disposal. And I want you to know there is something right now in your possession. There's something right now that you have that you may not even be aware of, but if you use it for God's glory, it can turn into a miracle. You have something that God can use to work the miraculous. And we're gonna see that as we go through this story. The good news is that God has always been able to do a lot with very little. You know, he fed 5,000 people plus with five loaves of bread and two fish. He changed the world with 12 ordinary men. And if we're honest, his most amazing feat in doing a lot with very little is the fact that he changed you and me. God has done a whole lot with somebody who doesn't amount to much without him. He is a God who defies the odds. The Bible describes him this way in Romans, Romans four seventeen. He is the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. New things out of nothing describes most of our salvation experience, doesn't it? That's what God has done for us. He brings the dead back to life and creates new things out of nothing. But I want you to know the God who did that for you and for me to bring us from death to life, to restore us back to right relationship with him, to breathe life into our dead spiritual being, the God who did that continues to do that and is still capable of doing that in our lives, in our church, in our workplace, in our family. God wants to continue to create new things out of nothing and he can and he will what it comes down to is this he can overcome any and every circumstance and will use whatever we surrender to him and that's the key we've got to be willing to surrender it we've got to be willing to offer it we've got to be willing to lay it down this woman had one flask of oil left this is it and she gave it up she let it go she was willing to say, how can I use this? So look at what you have. Those of you who may have lost jobs, what do you have? You have opportunities. What skills do you have? How about connections, passions, ideas? Start with what you have, not what you don't have. And let God steer you from there. Next, we have verses three and four. And Elisha said, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it is filled. This instruction had to make no sense to this woman. Zero sense, okay? He says, pour your little flask into all these jars that you're gonna get. So here's step two. Be willing to do whatever it takes. Be willing to do whatever it takes There's a lot of times, church, if you read through the the entire Bible, the miracles we see in the Old Testament, the miracles we see in the New Testament, we see miracle after miracle. And if you look at what God asks people to do, more often than not, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the natural we, they don't see how it's going to work out. They don't see what it's going to do. You know, they don't see wh- why this matters. Can't God just do it? Of course he can. He could just do whatever he wants. But we'll talk about why he has us play a part in a second. You see, we can't do miracles, can we? You know, it's frustrating, isn't it? We can't manufacture them. We can't force God's hand in it. But there are some things we can do to position us to experience the miraculous. So let's not worry about the miracles. Let's not get focused on what only God can do, but let's focus on putting ourselves in a position where God can do something miraculous. And what I want you to see here is sometimes it takes a step of faith. I'm sure that this woman felt a little foolish borrowing all these empty containers. Cause you know, she's borrowing, you know, five jugs from one house and then she gets seven from another. And word's gotta travel in these small communities. Hey, she borrowed from you two? What in the world? She's gotta have as she they talk because she's gotta have forty, fifty of these containers now. What's going on in her house? I mean, she doesn't need them, does she? She doesn't have anything to put in them. She doesn't need them based on the circumstances that she is in right now because she just has this little flask of oil and she doesn't know why, but she takes a step of faith based on the word that God had given her. And I'm thinking she is probably a little self-conscious, but she takes a step of faith and she borrows all these empty containers. And here God gives us kind of a formula for overcoming difficulty. Here it is, humility and effort. Humility, recognizing you can't, Okay, effort, doing whatever God asks of you. So we surrender to God and then we do whatever is asked of us. It takes effort. It takes intentional energy. It takes right thinking, consistently doing the right things, building momentum toward the solution. We keep going. We keep moving. We keep trying. We keep trusting that God will honor our effort. Pray as if it only depends on God and work as if it only depends on you. That's the dynamic here, humility and effort. What you do when life doesn't go your way, I I mean, a lot of us, we mope, we get depressed, we give up, we retreat. There's two types of people that I kind of thought of who approach difficulty the wrong way. Okay, there's the escapers and the controllers. These are the two different ways that we can approach difficult times the wrong way. The escapers, they, they will... Uh, eat. They will, they will drink. They'll get entertained. They'll take vacation. They'll do all these things that bring themselves pleasure to mask the pain of what they're going through. Remember the Southwest commercials that used to end with the line, want to get away? You know, it's like, hey, just escape. Just go somewhere. Get away from the problems that you're facing. And they try to get away from their problems, these escapers, but they come back and the issue is still there. It doesn't solve the problem. And then you have the controllers. They're the ones who will do whatever it takes in their sphere of power. They will steal. They will lie. They will cheat. They'll get angry trying to manipulate the situation to suit them. They destroy relationships. They burn bridges. And they play the blame and the shame game. And it may even work in the short term to make themselves feel better and even mitigate some of the, the problems. But it never works over the long haul. And, the, and it usually comes back even worse. So here's the problem. All of us want a miracle from God, but very few people want to work for it. The nature of miracles is that they don't just happen to everyone every day, right? I mean, in my experience, most of the time, in order for God to do what only God can do, he first expects us to do what only we can do. Let me say that again. In order for God to do what only God can do, he first expects us to do what only we can do. And God says that the solution is effort and humility. I mean, listen, in bad situations, pride is not your friend. Pride is not going to help you. The Bible says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It says that pride comes before a fall. It takes humility to please God. It takes humility to activate God's power in our lives. She has to humble herself and take the advice of someone else. Then she has to go door to door to her neighbors, asking for them to help her. Can I borrow some jars? This is awkward, maybe even embarrassing, but she is willing to do whatever it takes. What about you? In the problem that you may be facing in your life, are you willing to do whatever it takes? Are you willing to step out beyond your comfort zone to do what needs to be done? And here's what I love about this widow. She goes and she borrows these vessels, these jars, without really even knowing why. It's crazy. Why would she even do that? Because here's the thing. God doesn't reveal the outcome. Elisha doesn't tell her, well, God's going to perform a miracle of multiplication and he's going to take this oil and he's going to stretch it. He's going to multiply it beyond its capacity and it's going to keep flowing. He doesn't tell her what he is going to do. And so here's the thing. Faith is not faith if you need to know the outcome. Faith is not faith if you need to know the outcome. If you require a step by step before you take a single step, then you don't have faith and you're not practicing the life of faith that God has called us to live. You just need to be obedient and take that first step of faith that God has asked you to take. You know, I mean, just a practical example for us, when I when in in our journey towards moving to Texas and planting this church, our first step that God called us to was to step down from the church that I was pastoring in Mesa, Arizona. And the church was, was we had gone through a rough time back in 2008, 2009, and 2010, and the economy was obviously so bad. And we all remember what that was like. And churches were going through difficult situations. And God led us through that and got us through to a stable position on the other side. And we were ready. And God tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, Jeff, it's time to step out. And I'm like, what in the world? And I had no idea what was next. I had no idea what God was calling me to do. I had no idea where God was calling me to go. I didn't know that I was gonna be here today talking to you. I didn't know that we were gonna have a church named Trilogy in the 380 corridor of, of, of DFW. I didn't know that God was gonna call us to even get up and move. All I knew is that God had said, hey, it's time to step away from the church. And that was a very, very difficult decision that Melissa and I had to face and, and pray through and finally step out in an act of obedience and humility and say, yeah, we're supposed to leave, but we have no idea what we're going to do next. That was rough, but we knew that obeying God was going to be far better in the long run than staying and doing what made sense to us in the short term. Here's a way of thinking about it for you. The African Impala is a really cool animal and what's amazing about this animal is that it has Incredible leaping ability and when I say incredible leaping ability, I am not overselling. Okay, it can leap vertically about 10 feet into the air and Horizontally about 30 feet That's nuts. I mean this this animal has some hops now you would think that zookeepers, right, would have a really hard time keeping these things in an enclosed space. I mean, how high do they have to build the walls around the Impala area to keep them from jumping over, right? I mean, 10 feet plus, right, to keep them in this enclosed space. You know how high you have to build a wall to keep the Impala in the enclosed space? Three feet high. A three-foot wall will keep the African Impala from jumping out of its enclosure. Why? Because an Impala will not jump if it cannot see where it will land. It won't jump if it can't see where it will land. And I wonder how many of us are like that with matters of faith. I've got faith, but I just need to know the outcome. Then you don't have faith. If we, re- if we have to see where we're going to land, then we really are not moving in faith. What did Abraham do? God says, hey, go to the land that I will give to you. He just go. He went even though he didn't know where he was going. That's faith. Faith is borrowing a container and putting yourself out there. A little awkward, borrowing from neighbors without knowing why God even wants you to do it. But if you have the faith to do it, and I promise that first step is the hardest step if you take that step of faith, if you take that small step, here's some good news. The miracle may only be a phone call away. It may only be one meeting away or one application away. And I know there's also the process of prayer and discernment that goes into this as well. Absolutely. I mean, if you're going to get out of the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in a storm, you want to make sure that Jesus has said, come to me. You know, when, Jesus, when Peter was on, Peter said to Jesus, hey, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. And so Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and he ran to Jesus. And it was pretty awesome. But you better make sure that Jesus has said, come, or you're going to look foolish and you're going to get wet. But if Jesus has said, come, you better not stay in that boat. You better take that little step of faith. And you might just have a walking on water experience in your own life, in your own circumstances. There are times that the biggest barrier to a miracle of God in our lives is us. We become the roadblock. We become the obstacle. Humbly give your best effort and open the door for God to work the miraculous. So next we're going to look at verse 5 and 6. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her and she filled one after another. Soon every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. So here's step three. We need to act believing God will show up. Act believing God will show up. This woman shuts the door behind her in a house full of empty jars. And all she has is this one little flask of oil. And she could have looked around the house and said, this makes no sense. Let's let's make ourselves some some cakes and have a nice meal with the oil that we have left instead of wasting it. But she did what she was told. God often requires you to take the first step of faith. When the Israelites were headed to the promised land, they had to cross the Jordan River at flood stage. And let me tell you, the Jordan River hauls when it is at flood stage. It is moving. It is rushing and God told them to step into the water. Well, you step into the Jordan River, you get swept away. And they were not just stepping in just themselves that they could fight the current and maybe get themselves across, you know, 100 or 200 yards downstream. No, they're carrying all their supplies. They're carrying their, their, their families, their small children. There's all of this stuff that's going with them. And God tells them, step into the water. And it was only after they stepped in that God caused the water to stop. It was as soon as they took that step in that it stopped. In John 9, Jesus puts mud in a blind man's eyes and tells him to wash. The man obeys and he can see. It may not make any sense in the moment, but God wants us to trust him. And here's the principle. To understand why we submit and we apply. To understand why. We want to get to that point of understanding, but the point of understanding comes after we submit to God's will and we apply the instructions he's given us. The woman does and the oil starts to flow and she sees God as the God who supplies her needs. He has truly become Jehovah Jireh to her. Here's the thing. If God wanted to, could he not have produced all of these jars full of oil and just said, here you go, your problem solved? Absolutely he could have. Why didn't he? Because the collection of jars was a demonstration of her faith. And God wanted her to show faith before he showed up. Another thought here, the measure of her effort was directly proportional to the magnitude of the blessing of God. What do I mean by that? The measure of her effort, how many jars she was willing to collect, was directly proportional to the magnitude of the blessing of God. It filled every jar Full. What do you think she was thinking when the oil started to flow and fill the jars? I mean, that second time where she says, Bring me another jar, I can hear her voice and the excitement. Can you just picture this woman? Bring me another jar! I mean, she's excited. God is showing up and she's seeing a miracle right in front of her eyes. She's participating in the miracle by pouring from this flask. I mean, I can imagine. Her faith in God grew with every filled container. But when did she run out of oil? The second she ran out of jars. What do you think would have happened if she had more jars? She would have filled them too. The measure of the miracle was her initial faith and initial efforts. And I think many of us don't put out enough empty containers. What does it say in the story? The oil kept flowing until they ran out. That's why God says borrow as many as you can. That's the instructions Elisha gave her. And I'm convinced that one of our greatest shortcomings is the simple fact that we have such low expectations of an almighty God. He is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power at work within us. The prophet Isaiah said, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So God compares the difference between our ability and his ability to the expanse of the universe astrophysicists have discovered galaxies that are 15 and a half billion light years away from where we are right now to put that into perspective light travels at 186,000 miles per second 186,000 miles per second that's so fast okay everybody snap your fingers Okay, snap your fingers. If you're one of those people who can't snap, just pretend. Go through the motions. We'll make fun of you later. Okay, everybody snap your fingers. In the time it took you to do that, light went around planet Earth six times in the snap of a finger. That's incredible. So it takes light traveling at 186,000 miles per second, 15 and a half billion years to reach the outer edges of the universe, as much as we've been able to discover, which by the way, was created when God simply said four words, let there be light. So what am I trying to say? I think we tend to underestimate God just a little bit. That our best thought on our best day is 15 and a half billion light years short of how good and how great God really is. God is able and we need to trust him. But here's the funny thing. We bring God, what, maybe three containers? And we get nervous wondering if he can fill them. I mean, seriously, let's try 300. Let's try 3,000 containers. Here's what I want you to see. Sometimes we feel like we might offend God if we make the big ask. If we ask for too much. It's the exact opposite. I think God is offended when we bring him down to our level and we think of him in human terms and just ask him to do what is like barely, you know, above humanly possible. That doesn't honor God. He doesn't love that. He loves it when someone has enough faith to say, God, I have no idea how, and I don't understand that outcome, but I'm gonna believe you in a big way to do something way beyond what I can even understand. And I'm gonna pray for that mountain to move. God loves your faith. We need to keep stretching ourselves and believing God for the miraculous. And there are times when God supplies to the level of our faith. In the Bible, it says it this way. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. There's at least three specific areas that this applies. And they're all found in Luke, the sixth chapter. It says that number one, how we judge others will determine how we are judged. Number two, our ability to forgive others impacts our forgiveness. And number three, our ability to give will impact what is given to us. All of those are found in Luke chapter 6. Uh, and Luke 6:38 says this, give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. And this is a big issue because we tend to want God to bless us without showing any faith. And yet in these three arenas, God's word says that we should live expecting God to show up. We should judge, forgive, and give in such a way that we expect that God is going to show up. Here's some questions you and I should both be asking. If everyone viewed people the same way I do with regard to judgment, would the world be a better place? If God had the same level of forgiveness as I do, would that be a good thing? If the heart and effort of my giving were the standard of generosity all around the world, what impact and what difference would that make? What is it that I do in these areas that would compel God to say, wow, now that's someone I want to invest in. That's someone I want to bless. Because here's the thing, God provided the oil But God didn't pour the oil. God provided the oil, but he didn't pour the oil. The widow poured the oil. And while she kept pouring, he kept providing. And if you want God to continue providing in your life, you need to keep pouring out. As long as you keep pouring, the blessing will keep flowing. We will always be full and we will always have plenty to pour out. But the converse is true as well. If we're not pouring ourselves out, if we're not pouring out uh, the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit from our lives into the lives of those around us, we're going to dry up. Then when we, when, when someone needs God to use us to be a blessing in their lives, we're going to be dry. And I never want to give others what's being scraped off the bottom. I want to I give them something fresh that is being poured off the top. And that happens as I continually pour myself out, as I continually invest in those around me, as I continue to be generous, as I continue in all those areas, God will continue to replenish and refill and restore. And I fully believe that as long as we continue to pour out, God will continue to bless us. God will pour in. And I believe that personally, and I believe that corporately as a church. So what do we need to keep doing? We need to keep pouring out. As a church, we will keep investing in our community. We will keep resourcing missionaries all around the world. We will continue to seek out a home where we can build our community center and be salt and light in the 380 corridor. We will continue to pour out. We will continue to make investment because God will continue to bless and to replenish. Always be asking, am I acting in such a way that believes that God will show up? 2 Kings 4, 7. When she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, Now sell the olive oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left over. So, finally, step four honor God with the results. She experienced the miracle, but she still had a responsibility. She needed to honor God with the results. Two quick observations, and then we'll close. First, if we want to honor God, we will use his blessing for the purpose that God intended. This is big. The woman was told to take the money and pay her debts. She needed to do that. She needed to fulfill that obligation. Has anyone made a promise to God in a tough situation before? You know, God, uh, maybe it was, God, if you get me through this, I will fill in the blank here. You know, you've, you've been there and you've made some promises to God. And then God gets you through it and you forget everything about what you said in that prayer. The people of Israel did this all the time. Honor God first with what he blesses you with. The second thing is this. God often does more than we can ask or imagine. In the woman's case, her issue was her debts, but God gives her more than she needs. Elisha told her she and her sons could live on what was left over. That is the grace of God. He gave her more. He provided for her beyond just to meet her her debt need. And when that happens to you, when you get more than you need, what do you do? We need to be helping those around us. We need to honor God first and then honor him further by investing in those who are around us to be generous. Let God use you to bless others with our money, with our time, with our skills. Be a blessing to people around you. Be a blessing to your church family. Be a blessing to the other families of Trilogy. Be a blessing to your neighbors. Be a blessing in your workplace. Be a blessing to those who you call friends. Be a blessing to strangers. Be a blessing to those around you. When you find yourself in a situation where you need a miracle, the expectation is that you will trust God, that you will start with what you have. What has God given you? What has God equipped you with? What has God set in front of you that he can use? Be willing to do whatever it takes. Step out of your comfort zone. Do things that maybe aren't even in your wheelhouse, but because God has asked you, you don't necessarily even understand the why, but you understand the who. You step out and be willing to do whatever it takes. And then act believing that God will show up. God is going to step in and provide the miracle at the right time. And finally, we honor God with the results. Give God the glory. Tell your story. Share what God has blessed you with with those around you and be a resource in their lives. And God will receive the praise. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our time that we've had together today to hear from your word, to experience this woman's story from the book of 2 Kings. God, to see that even though she was going through incredibly difficult circumstances, God, you were right there with her. And God, I pray that you would help us when we go through adversity, when we go through difficult times, when we face the unknown and uncertainty, God, we would be willing to go to the right place, that we would go to you. And God, I pray that you would respond and provide the answer miraculously, God, time and time again, show up in our lives with the miracle that we need to see us through. But God, give us the faith to to bring what we have. Give us the faith to step out and to do what we're called to do, even though sometimes it may not even make sense. God, help us to act as if you will show up because you will. You've promised in your word that you will show up, that you will not, never abandon us. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. And God, we place ourselves in your capable and miracle working hands. And then God, help us to bring glory and honor to you on the other side. God, would you be with Trilogy today? Be with every family who's listening to this message today and help us to live and expect the miraculous. God, I pray that you would help us to put ourselves continually in environments and circumstances that are ready for you to work the miraculous in our lives and through us. We thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.